Features a cover by Joe Cubitt, and the first and last story. It's a it's a framing sequence. Uh, they're written by Bob Haney with art by Alex Toth. Is it Toth? You think? Yeah. Toth. Toth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, the the second story is called Pawns, which is written by Marv Wolfman with art by Frank Thorne, and the third story, Goliath at the Western uh, Goliath of the Western Front, is also written by Bob Haney with art by Ross Andrew. So. That's quite a uh, murderous row of creators. Oh, and, yeah, uh, <laughs> I was very surprised, yeah. <laughs> and uh, thanks, D-Ron, for uh, giving us a lot to research. Um, and we're going to we're gonna go uh, go we'll go through this the creators in brief. We don't want to go way too long. We'll just hit on some of the uh, more salient points here. And uh, we're going to start with Joe Cubitt. Uh, Joseph Cubitt, born uh, September 18th, 1926, in Jezerny, Lower Sicilian Voivodeship, <laughs> Poland. <laughs> he was born uh, in Poland. <laughs> he was born in Poland, a Polish gentleman. Uh, he grew up in East New York, uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, got his first paying gig when he was only 12 years old. He was uh, drawing comics at five bucks a page. Wow. Uh, he worked for MLJ, which would become Archie, uh, inking a rush job for an early or perhaps even the first Archie comic book, which came out the following year. He attended the High School of Music and Art in Manhattan. Uh, following high school, he freelanced. Uh, he freelanced for pretty much every comics publisher around, including EC, where he worked on Harvey Kurtzman's Two-Fisted Tales. He uh, created the character Tor for St. John Publications, and yeah. Tor is kind of like a Tarzan caveman type of thing. It's exactly yeah. I think that's the best way to put it. Sort of like <laughs> sort of like Conan met Tarzan met yeah. you know. Uh, and, and I think I don't know who does it, but Dynamite or one of these publishers still puts out a Tor book or. This, I think so. This character gets dusted off every now and again. And I think he's also in the. Uh, I think he's also in the signage for for the school that we'll be talking about in a bit. Yeah. Um, beginning in 1955, uh, he wrote Army at War, number 32, March 1955. Uh, he began a long-running relationship with DC, uh, where he stylized their war comics. Uh, he co-created Sergeant Rock with George Kaniga in Army at War, number 83. This is June 1959. He's also known for contributing to Showcase Number no. 4, October 1956, which is the first appearance of uh, the Barry Allen Flash. And uh, he, he didn't do that one, but uh, no. he, uh, he uh, also created uh, a new Hawkman in The Brave and the Bold Number no. 34, which was February-March 1964. 
Uh, from 65 to 67, he collaborated with the writer Robin Moore on the daily comic strip uh, Tales, of the Green Ber- Tales of the Green Beret for the Chicago Tribune. He was DC Comics Director of Publications from 1967 to 1976. Indeed, all the letters in the, the, in the letters column here, which is APO Weird War Tales from this very issue of Weird War Tales, are addressed to Joe. Um, APO, incidentally, stands for Army Air Force Post Office. Uh, military diplomatic rate that allows folks to ship stuff at domestic rates. Yeah, I didn't know that. So, that yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> an interesting little tidbit there, and and it's a it's a nice thing for them to do. Um, now, while supervising several comics, he did some artwork uh, like Tarzan from '72 to '75, and he did covers for Rima. The Rima, you think Rima or Rima? I think Rima, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do Rima. Rima the Jungle Girl from 1974 to 1975. And as evidenced by the the very book we're reading this episode, he also did covers for Weird War Tales. Yeah, I, I don't know how many he did, but he did this one. So he was, and and it's he's basically the managing editor for the whole series. So yeah, for the whole imprint of war books. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, now Bob Haney, here's a fellow we talked about before when we did the mm-hmm. first appearance of uh, Teen Titans. But just to run down real quick. Robert G. Haney, born on March 15, 1926, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. After serving in the Navy during World War II, he got out and received a master's in philosophy from Columbia University. He began writing comics, uh, four comics in 48, beginning with College for Murder in Black Cat No. 9, January 1948. He began a working relationship with DC Comics in 1955 that would last decades. His first DC story was Frogman's Secret and All-American Men of War No. 17, January 1955. Uh... Now, the first appearance of Sergeant Rock, a prototype of the character that we would come to know, he did he, he did uh, write that in Ar- Army of War number 81, April 1959, that was edited by the Sergeant Rock co-creator, George Kaniger, so sort of with his blessing. It gets complicated, and as I read, uh, I never read that issue, but they don't call him Sergeant Rock in that issue. He's just sort of like the prototype for the guy that we would come to know as Sergeant Rock, but... Haney was there on the front lines, folks. And uh, over time, Haney wrote pretty much one of everything, and we've discussed him in more detail before. Uh, he co-created Eclipso, uh, Eclipso, Metamorpho, the Teen Titans, the Enchantress, and was involved in the creation of the Doom Patrol. Yeah, uh, moving on to Alex Toth. Uh, we have Alexander Toth, born uh, June 25, 1928, in New York City. He attended the School of Industrial Art in Manhattan for high school. Uh, it would become the High School of Art and Design later on. He would be hired by Sheldon Meyer, Sheldon Meyer himself for national periodicals. First comic he did was Green Lantern number 28, uh, cover dated October-November 1947. Uh, he would move to California in 1952 and did crime, war, and romance comics for Standard Comics publishers. He uh, was drafted into the Army in 1954, where he served in uh, Tokyo. Uh, upon discharge in 56, he moved to Los Angeles and uh, worked primarily for Dell Comics uh, until 1960. He would be hired by uh, Hanna-Barbera Animators. He would create Space Ghost, the, the Herculoids, Birdman, and the Galaxy Trio, uh, and Dino Boy in the Lost Valley. He worked for Warren Publications also during this time, uh, contributing to Creepy, Eerie, and a few other magazines. Uh, he drew the first issue of DC Comics' The Witching Hour, which is cover dated February, March 1969, and by now uh, pretty much drew whatever he felt like drawing. Yeah, he was a you know a well-respected artist by this time when this book came out. But still today, yeah, uh, definitely still today. Uh, I bet he made though the bulk of his money on the Hanna Bear stuff, frankly. Oh but, yeah, uh, I, I put money on that. Yeah, that's usually what people think of. Now we're going to talk about an old friend, Marv Wolfman. Uh, I'm not sure if we ever did a full bio on him. I guess we must have when we did uh, Teen Titans. Some Titan stuff, yeah. But we'll try to do a little bit of justice right here. Uh, Marvin Arthur Wolfman, born May 13, 1946, in Brooklyn, New York, moved to my hometown of Flushing, Queens when he turned 13, uh, which was long before I was alive, attended the High School of Art and Design, and he had his own horror fanzine, Stories of Suspense, which is one of the earliest publishers of Stephen King's writing. Hmm. His first comics work was in Blackhawk, number 242, August, September 1968. And he co-wrote a few stories with Len Wein, including The Eye of the Beholder and T-Titans, number 18, December 1968. Uh, I guess that was his first ever Teen Titans work. Uh, yeah. that, that would be Len Wein's first professional comics credit, uh, which is nice for him. 
In House of Secrets number 83, January 1969, Jerry Conway introduces the book with Kane saying the following story was written by a wandering wolfman, and the opening story, which was the stuff that dreams are made of, was written by Marv. This would contribute to a relaxing of the Comics Code in 1971, and we went over that in great detail in our Comics Code series. I think it was the uh, second or third episode. Yeah. Uh, and they co-wrote, uh, Len and Marv co-wrote, Titans Fit the Battle of Jericho, which would have introduced the first African-American superhero at DC Comics, but Carmine Infantino, who was the publisher at the time, he nixed it. Uh, he had Neil Adams rewrite and draw a story based on it, which would appear in Teen Titans number 20, March to April 1969. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, move on to uh, Frank Thorne. He was born June 6, 1930 in Rahway, New Jersey. Uh, began working for Standard Comics in 1948, uh, pencil and romance books and the like. Uh, drew the Perry Mason comic strip for King's Features Syndicate. And uh, freelanced throughout the uh, 50s and 60s, primarily for Dell, but uh, worked for a few other publishers as well. Uh, Ross Andrew. Ro- Rosalov and... Well, okay. Andruskovic. Andruskovic, I would say. Andruskovic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he was born uh, June 15th, 1927, in Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> That's a letdown. Yeah. After that name, uh, uh, he attended the High School of Music and Art with a uh, friend and future collaborator, Mike Esposito. Uh, was drafted and served in the Army during World War II, would be discharged in 46. Attended Bern Hogarth's Cartoonist and Illustrator School, which later became the School of Visual Arts in 1947. Uh, he would work on the Tarzan newspaper strip from 1948 until it ended uh, around 1951 or so. Uh, Ross would do the layouts and Hogarth would ink. Uh, he formed a company with Mike, Ex- Mike Esposito in 1951 called MR Publications that did freelance work and the short-lived Mr. Universe comic, which is uh, July 1951 through 1953. Uh, formed Mike Ross Publications in 1953, did some uh, 3D comics and romance comics, uh, and three issues of uh, the Mad Magazine ripoff, Get Lost. There was a lot of those back in the day. Yeah. Uh, in uh, 1952, Andrew and Esposito began a long relationship with DC Comics, doing uh, primarily war comics, beginning with All-American Men of War number 6. This would be uh, December 1962, February 19... I'm sorry, February 1953, yeah. where they uh, drew a story apiece. And uh, Andrew, uh, most perhaps most notably, uh, had a nine-year run on uh, Wonder Woman, beginning with uh, issue uh, 98, uh, which would have been May 1958. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, when I did my research on this, uh, you really can't tell the story of Ross Andrew without Mike Esposito. It seems like the two of them were mm. joined at the hip uh, the entire time. But uh, this is not about him. It's about yeah. Ross Andrew and about war comics and robots in war. This particular issue, Weird War number 6, has a theme. It's robots, um, and you'll come to find out. Now, Weird War Tales falls into a specific subgenre known as military science fiction. Um, sort of a, a not-recognized genre by everybody. People, Some people feel like uh, just because the spaceships fire lasers doesn't make it military, but it, it's a real subgenre. Uh, the first example of the military sci-fi was in a novella, The Battle of Dorking, written by George Tompkins Chesney, published by Lippincott, Grambo & Co. in 1871. This was set 100 years into the future, which would have been 1971, ironically. <laughs> uh, as much as, It's as much a commentary on the recently concluded Franco-Prussian war, war as it is anything else, but it's it involves futuristic uh, military stuff, not robots, but, uh, I don't know, missiles and whatever else. <laughs> A uh, very early instant ro- instance of robots fighting in war in literature was H.G. Wells' short story, The Land Ironclads, published in December 1903, issue of Strand Magazine. In this one, Wells essentially predicts what would become tanks 30 years from then. Uh, this story also really um, cemented H.G. Wells as people saw him as a prophet, uh, maybe not as, you know, uh, big as Nostradamus, but they saw him as some sort of a soothsayer. They thought he had uh, precognition for stuff that would happen in the future. Um, other popular works like Robert Heinlein's The Starship Troopers and Joe Hadel, Haldeman's The Forever War, those are classic examples of military sci-fi. Now, uh, we do actually have robots in war today. Uh, the, US, yes. the U.S. military is, by all accounts, the only fighting force in the world to use remote-controlled weapons and aerial drones. Uh, the U.S. has used aerial drones for surveillance and combat and 
many other tasks. They're quite versatile uh, in northern Pakistan since 2004. Interestingly, these are actually under the purview of the CIA's Special Activities Division. That's crazy. Which I thought was pretty crazy, but uh, I will say no more about that. No, (laughs) we will let it lay there. (laughs) Uh, Now, Weird War Tales here, uh, number six. The uh, it opens like we said it opens with a uh, it is a framing sequence here we're going to revisit these guys at the end of the book as well um, now this is like we said a short story that frames uh, frames the other two stories that are going to follow and uh, it's got this awesome you know Alex Toth artwork that we've uh, come to know and uh, appreciate it's just great yeah I mean it's, it's like yeah. so noir and perfect it's uh, and, and and even the sound effects just look awesome. They do, they do, and uh, this story takes place during World War II, uh, because this comic isn't about to provide any meaningful commentary on the Vietnam War that was currently going on at that point. Um, This is DC Comics, folks, this ain't uh, your underground stuff here. Yeah, (laughs) and the comics code still had some teeth, so uh, they didn't want any uh, any naysaying. now, there's some real you know army action going on here it's uh it looks like a, we're in an european countryside near the ruins of uh, some sort of like an idyllic uh, idyllic uh, pastoral village yeah. uh, an unnamed army battalion runs from a screamer which is a heavy bomb dropped from overhead and dives into a foxhole just as as it explodes there just happens to be another soldier in the foxhole luckily he's on the same side he's an american and he's smoking a cigarette <laughs> for custom of the time yeah, you know this is something and it's it's such a common thing in World War II movies and, and comics and whatever. They're all smoking and I know that everyone smoked at the time but it always struck me as a crazy thing to do during war because you know, it's it has a smell yeah. you know, you have to light it I know there were all kinds of tricks to like hide your cigarette light, you know but why even go through that? Just don't don't smoke, you know what I mean? It's like it's just, just just unwrap it and chew on it. <laughs> if you if you have to, you know. I mean, it's like I I and I I really think it was since they were you know smoking like bandits on the German side too. I think they just had like probably a mutual agreement, like we're gonna let the cigarettes thing go. You know, <laughs> yeah, this time. I, I I won't use the cherry of your cigarette to blow a sniper round through your head, but anything else goes. You know what I mean? Well, yes. that's a, that's off off limits. Uh, with the the corporal, they jump in and he says, "Close, real close. Hey, this hole's already occupied." Hi. And the guy in the ditch says, "Hello, corporal. Plenty of room in here for all of us." And the corporal notes that the ditch was dug awfully fast, and the stranger kind of brushes it off as an acquired skill that he's just just learned. Yeah. Uh, the army guys can't get anyone on the radio for uh, for orders, and uh, the Nazis bombard the nearby village ruins, reducing them to rubble. Yeah, and one of the army guys says, There ain't nothing that could survive that. Sometimes I wish I wasn't made of flesh and blood, so as I couldn't get hurt. The barrage has stopped for now. I heard a crazy rumor that an enemy's using robot GIs on the right flank. Brr! How do we stand up to them? They never get tired, hungry, or scared. Guy in the ditch says, Oh, I don't know, soldier. Seems to me like if enough pressure's put on, robot or no... It's bound to go. Besides, if the enemy's got them robots, our side must have them too. Which really doesn't stand to reason. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Allies did win the war by having a certain weapon. The enemy didn't. I mean, that's certainly uh, how you win wars, right? <laughs> you, you, you kind of <laughs> outmaneuver you the other side yeah, there. Uh, resources and so on. Anyway, but, you know, fine. Uh, sure. But still, this army kid wouldn't want to fight alongside a robot since they have no harder feeling and therefore couldn't be a buddy. Yeah, you, you win friends and influence people by joining the army. Yeah, I don't think this guy was very popular in his high school. Probably uh, not. The corporal still can't raise any superiors, so they're stuck in the foxhole until something better comes along. Corporal says, unless some GI robot kicks us out. And the stranger, of course, cigarette still hanging from his lips, and it hangs from his lips the entire time uh, we see him, yes. by the way. Tells a couple of yarns about military robots to pass the time and illustrate that robots can be defeated. Yeah, our first uh, our first tale is called Pawns, <laughs> the Sounds of War. Uh, some guys are sitting in what looks like a technologically advanced control room with uh, three huge video screens, each depicting robots all just blasting each other to smithereens. One side's robots look like the cyclon, cy- was it the Cylons from Cylons. Battlestar Galactica? And the other side's robots wear creepy white masks like uh, Michael Myers in the Halloween movies. There are like a half dozen people in the room, all looking. Really uh, unimpressed, even bored. Um, 
looks like uh, there's room below with uh, some other folks milling about. And uh, two guys sit side by side. A table between them has a, a chessboard on it. Yeah, we come to know one of them's named Lina, and he says, It never changes, Morna. This war grows tiring. To which Morna says, After 200 years, Lina, even lovemaking may become wearisome. Hey, it can get boring after a weekend. Uh, Lina <laughs> replies, War is a game of chess, Morna, played with robot pawns that battle while we humans sit back. Unbothered! And Lina toys with a chess pawn as if to further illustrate that point. Yeah, these guys are kind of dicks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the implication here is that the robots were created simply to preserve human life during wartime. That was 200 years ago. And uh, now that it's become so much easier to uh, to not die during war, it, it just keeps going. It's like watching a sport, uh, that's all. Yeah, it's basically it. It's a team sport right now, and uh, the humans watch the war unfold on their TV screens and uh, and from an observation schema. Um, essentially, which, which is essentially a huge uh, aircraft that sort of looks like an orange penguin. And I love the fact, that, and it becomes relevant, but there's a bubble cockpit at the front. It's like yes. right out of a 1950s sci-fi flick or something. Absolutely. Uh, down on the surface, the warring robots are actually balking orders at each other. One robot says, R4-S2-T6, survey town, immediate report, any sign of enemy nest, others, follow me, sniper, scatter, complete trajectory, fire back. So uh, why aren't these orders programmed? At the, at the very least, why do they have to be spoken aloud? Wouldn't that give uh, your opponents yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a... It's like, oh, that's what they're going to do. I mean, you think one of the benefits of being a robot is you could transfer this information, you know, wordlessly, but I guess, uh, you know, all the ways... Yeah, Wi-Fi wasn't in yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, the humans love to watch the carnage below, even though they look they look bored. Just uh, just last page. They, yeah. They're really pleased. Suddenly, Lina is uh, looking down on the action going on, and he uh, radios to Morna, says, Lina for Morna, I'm over the battle. Our side's blasting theirs down to transistors. The sergeant's having a power failure. He's gone crazy. Enemy turning into litter bugs. They're leaving their parts all over the street. Something's happening. They're regrouping. Wasn't Lina, like, just sitting right next to him? Weren't they just playing chess, like, yeah. five seconds ago? What happened? Like, he, he, <laughs> what, he ran down the hall to watch... Uh, and, and they have these big screens where they're watching robots blow up. Yeah. Well, why did you move? Anyway, yeah, he decided to <laughs> get, get a better angle on the action. Uh, mm -hmm. The robots are indeed regrouping. Broken robots reassembling themselves from scattered parts and converging on a large tower. The robots fire upwards, and a shot hits the observational skimmer. The ship plummets, trailing black smoke as it goes with a scree, and it crashes into the tower, throwing Lena free of the ship, or Lina free of the ship, and to the ground. Right through that stupid bu uh, cockpit bubble. Yeah. So that uh, that little nod to the uh, sci-fi days turns out to be a design flaw. Yeah, I saw it as being so cute, turned out to be the uh, fatal flaw the, in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, the undoing of Lina. Somehow, though, Lina lives what looks like quite a quite a big fall, uh, finds himself at the feet of several robot soldiers, and one of the robots says, that human is regaining consciousness, sergeant. To which the sergeant robot says, good. Uh, Lina replies, uh, my head feels like a computer sat on. Where am I? And this is perhaps my favorite line, and I was, ho I was hoping I was going to get this one. We shall ask the questions, human. <laughs> oh, no. Why not? <laughs> uh, it's like the robot can be a prick, too. Why not? Yes. Uh, Lina is a prisoner of the robot. Mm-hmm. The sergeant continues. You are the enemy. You are our hostage. Uh, an incoming missile just sends the robots and Lina scattering. Lina gets free of the blast, but many robots are destroyed. My men are deactivated. Brother, circuits destroyed. Sergeant Robot grabs Lina and raises him a couple of feet off the ground. It is your fault, human. Why must my men be destroyed? Why do you play this game of destruction? A robot actually begins crushing Lina to get some answers. Answer now. Lina says, I, I don't know the answer. We've been f fighting for so long. We don't know how to live any other way. Once we were going to stop this war, a long time ago, too many of our people were being killed. But then, 
we decided to use robots. No human would have to die. Well, <laughs> our robotic friend has some other ideas. Yeah. <laughs> the last panel mirrors the first, except now it's humans on the ground on these giant screens killing each other instead of robots. And there are two robots comfortably sitting uh, in the same seats that Lina and Morna were just in uh, with the same chessboard between them. It's important that the robots are comfortable, obviously. You know, they, yes. it really matters a lot to them. And uh, I wonder <laughs> if they started a new game or if they just picked up from uh, Morna's last move. We don't, we don't know. <laughs> We don't know. The first robot goes, it is good that we robots could agree with each other. The other says, now let us see how long this war lasts with humans doing the fighting and dying. Probably not all that long. And I, and I, I wonder, is are these two robots from the two opposing sides? Or are they both from the same side? They seem to be from the same side because they both have the Michael Myers masks. Yeah, they both have the same look, but they said it's good that we could agree. Who knows? Maybe maybe they're on the other floor. (laughs) (laughs) The other robots are more Czechist people. Um, now there's some kind of commentary about actual war here and the people made to fight them with uh, the real aggressors watching it unfolding from uh, relative safety. But for the life of me, I can't put my finger on what that commentary might be. No, I can't figure it out. But, uh, you know, we'll just go go on to our other it's story. Too. It does say we, make war no more. You know, I was going to say, we, we got to say make no make war no more. So we got that. You know, that's definitely uh, part of our uh, vernacular here. So uh, now we start with Goliath of the Western Front, Part One. This is a two-chapter story in the tradition of uh, these comics. Title page is a gigantic robot looming over a soldier about to step on him while the soldier files, fires an automatic rifle into the sole of the robot's foot. Spoiler alert. This yeah. gives away the ending of the story. This, this is basically the ending. But anyway, that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there, and hopefully it'll still have a lot of uh, surprises for you. Just, uh, just forget it. So this story takes place towards the end of the war when the GIs were knocking on Germany's front door, according to a caption, and some U.S. soldiers of the King Company are having a cerebral discussion. Yeah, we got one who goes, a good pig man can beat a good little man any day of the week. Another one says, I say a good little man can take a big man if he uses his head, finds the guy's weak spot. And a third soldier goes, by then it's too late. They decide to ask the smallest member of their squad. I'd say Excellus. He's a little guy. How about it, small stuff? Can a half pint like you take big guys like us? Yeah, Davey, give us the word from down there. <laughs> <laughs> all the soldiers are laughing while Davy Ellis storms off angrily. Big guys all my life. Big guys in my hair. On my back. And it's worse in the army. I'd give anything to get them off my back. Anything. Oh, the sergeant here knows that, Danny, that Davey's getting ribbed and decides to tell him the story that he hopes will shut him up. Uh, he tells them the story of David and Goliath. Uh, this is from the Book of Samuel, in case you were thinking of that uh, that crazy little claymation uh, boy and his dog. Yeah, which is what I always go to when I, when I hear these names. Yes. So the sergeant tells a story, uh, which is more or less the right story. He sure. says, Way back in ancient times, two armies were stalemated. Then, one outfit sent out his Goliath guy to challenge the other outfit. The guys who answered Goliath's challenge were clobbered. It looked bad for the other outfit until a squirt named Little David stepped out. Yeah, David let a pebble let fly a pebble no bigger than a thirty cal slug, but it landed smack on the bullseye. David had figured out the giant's weak spot was the part of his forehead his helmet didn't cover. This doesn't stop the soldiers from taunting Davy, sadly. Okay, you guys are so big and tough. Start looking for Nazi targets. Move out. Davey, take the point. He's so small, the snipers will miss him. If you're meeting any giants, Davey, you can hide in the Sarge's pocket. <laughs> That's where the Sarge keeps his porno. Yeah, he can't do that. Uh, Davey isn't thrilled about this treatment, and these jokers on his back is a common problem with him. But he scouts <laughs> ahead of the rest of the King Company and spies some Nazi tanks and shock troops hanging out up the road. We got a not, how, how do I do a Nazi soldier for us? Put on your best, your best Colonel Clink. <laughs> okay, so the Nazi soldier goes, Operation Goliath has begun, General. And the general says, Good. When the super weapon has made a breakthrough, we will pour into it and push the Americaners back into the sea. And so a giant robot wearing a Nazi uniform, though it should be noted that everything is, there isn't, there are no swastikas here. It's just, we know they're Nazis because they, they're, they are labeled yeah, as such. Exactly. Um, 
steps out from the tree line, each step a pounding thud. And we mean this thing is tremendous, easily 100 feet tall. Yeah. Davy radios back to his squad, and the Sarge sees the robot. He tells Davy to sign off, and the Sarge will call battalion. Davy runs back to King Company, the robot stepping or stomping just behind. Soldier says, look at it, bigger than a house. It's following a run right to us. I mean, this, uh, Davy could be crushed at any second. These jerks can't, uh, they just can't, they can't let up. You're in battle. You know what I mean? Yes. Can, we, can, we, can we put aside the uh, screwing with Davy for a second? <laughs> just, just for a moment. <laughs> a uh, plane buzzes in and fires on the robot, but the robot bashes the plane to bits with the butt of its giant gun. This giant robot has a giant gun. Yeah, I mean, that's that's more horrifying than it doesn't have <laughs> the giant bullets also. I'd be a little more concerned about that, you know, on yes. the side of the allies than just this big robot that can probably be toppled over with a with a tight cord. Sure. <laughs> now, the robot is hit by a barrage of mortar shells, but they also have no effect. Uh, now the robot's about to enter an anti-tank minefield. Surely this will cook his mechanical goose, which takes us to our next chapter, Goliath of the Western Front, Part 2. Uh, it turns out the robot has some sort of gadget in his boots that sets off landmines before he steps on them. Time for Plan D, and amazingly, the robot is still chasing Davy, specifically, it seems like. Why? Now, now let's let's consider here. He just walked into a minefield. Does that mean that Davy <laughs> ran through a minefield? Yeah, it seems that he had to have, right? I know it's like that's fine. You know, he he oh, he, he can handle it. I, I, if I if I can interject here with a with a new with a with a voice here, he's probably too light to set off any of them mines. There you go. That's there the kind we of we need. You could have been in the yes. army, no problem. I, I, I this is going to go on my resume. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Davy says. You big tin nightmare, get off my back. You big bruiser, get off my back. Uh, the Nazis are very pleased with how things are going. Even Hitler himself tracking the robot from his mountain fortress. <laughs> Nazi soldier goes, Operation Goliath? I, I can't do a German accent. That's all right. We'll do American. <laughs> okay. Operation Goliath proceeding successfully means sure. I'm Na- a turncoat. <laughs> Naturally, <laughs> our Nazi Goliath has no weak spot. At least none so stupid Americaners will ever find. Ha <laughs> ha! That was the best Hitler I've ever heard. <laughs> and uh, it, it begs the question here. It, it, so we don't. We know this machine has a weak spot. Yeah. Why would you build a, a weak spot into your death machine? Like, you know, fair is fair. That's it. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, you know, we're not going to we're not going to make it impossible to defeat yeah. this thing. You can do it. If, yeah. If you if you win, you earned it. Damn it. Um, <laughs> and uh, the Hitler that was so laughable and uh, fun here. It sounds awfully confident for a dude hiding in a mountain fortress. Yeah. You're in the Alps, bro. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're not on the front line here. But anyway. Yes. Now, the fellows in King Company, they are still screwing with Davy. Even while this robot is bearing down on them, uh, Davy brushes them off and suggests firing a bazooka point blank at the robot's head from the top of a nearby windmill. Uh, the team does mobilize right away, and they send Davy to the crest of the windmill by spinning it around and adding their weight to the blades. He fires the bazooka dead on target, but it has no effect. It must have a weak spot, just like Goliath did. Now, you see, Goliath was a gigantic human. Okay, yes. uh, you can engineer the weak spots out of robots. Uh, the Nazis added one, but you don't have to have one. That, that's sort of the point Chris is trying to make here. We can make them indestructible. <laughs> yes, uh, the robot smashes the windmill, sending the squad tumbling to the ground. And it looks like the sergeant dies. It seems that way. Uh, he says, hmm. I'm out of the fight, Davy. Scram and keep trying to find that Nazi Goliath's weak spot. That's an order. Davy, get that Goliath. Sarge! Sarge! Then Davy scrambles the soldiers into a canal where the robot can, uh, while the robot continues pursuing them. So, windmills, canals, I, I guess this has got to be Holland, right? Maybe, Probably. yeah. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> The robot follows him into the canal, but gets caught on underwater traps. The robot submerges completely beneath the water and seems defeated. Davy goes, those are underwater traps with a giant's weak spot. That, that, that wouldn't, okay. That thing is <laughs> off my back at last, and Sarge's last order is carried out. I mean, that's a pretty lazy solution because a weak spot can't be, you know, like. Not on your body. Exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, my weak spot isn't a bullet. You know, it's yeah. where the where the bullet punctures and murders me. But, uh, you know, it. that's uh, whatever. <laughs> now, uh, suddenly the robot's hand bursts through the water. Yeah, with some great sound effects. A bang and a whoosh. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, With broken chains now hanging off his frame, the robot walks out of the water at the same methodical pace, resuming his pursuit of King Company. And, for some reason, Davy specifically, still chasing this little guy. Yeah, and Davy goes, that big bruise is on my back again. I I must know I'm the runt. I'm easy pickings in this outfit. Then he gets his catchphrase in, get off my back. Get off my back. And as he's running, Davy twists his ankle. The robot is continuing uh, towards Davy, raises a foot to step on his fallen form. Davy fires his rifle, uh, automatic rifle against the sole of the robot's boot, still searching for that weak spot. Tell you, tell you what, Davy, if this robot has a weak spot, it's probably not through its superior German-engineered boots. This podcast is brought to you by the Deutschland Leatherworks. Eventually, Davy's bullets drill a hole in the robot's foot, shattering a vacuum tube within. I mean, this thing is using vacuum tubes, and I know that was yeah. the, that was the technology to have, but that's a real big design flaw for something that is you know, causing a minor earthquake as it walks yes. through the countryside. And being all-terrain and all that stuff. Yeah. Now, the, uh, the robot is kaput and falls right in front of young Davy. With Operation Goliath ruined, the Nazis fall back. And, of course, now the guys in King Company think Davy's swell. Can a good little guy beat a good big guy? And how, if the good little guy is our Davy? What's all the fuss? All I, all I was doing was keep another big joker off my back. So, uh, that giant Nazi robot, it seems like maybe Army Intelligence should have known about that, right? No? Before this yeah. happened? And, uh, did they, did they at least toast the dead sergeant? No, they seem to be thrilled about the outcome yeah. of this, so maybe, you know, I don't, I, I looked, I don't see, you know, his body in a stretcher or anything, so I guess they got over it or something, or, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe he crawled off to find a medic, whatever it was. Um, so now we go back to the, the second part of the framing story by uh, Haney and Toth. Back in the foxhole from the beginning of the book, the strange cigarette-smoking guy just suggests that this proves robots do have their weaknesses. So in that first story, it seems like the robot's weakness was an unwillingness to be destroyed, which is pretty much my weakness, your weakness, everyone's yeah. weakness, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it wasn't like they found the fatal flaw was that robot didn't want to fight. It's uh, that doesn't really anyway, but you know, maybe not as illustrative <laughs> as they wish it was. Yes. Uh, Army guy says, yeah, I don't feel so scared now. Still, I wouldn't want to have to fight alongside him. A guy needs flesh and blood buddies in combat. Which, is this a slumber party or a war? I know. What the hell? What do you care? You know what I mean? What, do you, what, do you want to hug and kiss somebody? <laughs> you going to have a pillow fight and roll around on the bed? <laughs> uh, a grenade gets chucked into the foxhole, and the stranger that dug the ditch throws himself on top of it. It explodes with a crumph. Yeah, I, I love a lot of the sound effects in this book. Yes, it's awesome. Army guy says, he smothered it to save us. He's dead. Our buddy's dead. Corporal goes, easy, kid. Gotta get his dog tags for the grave registration team. Corporal turns over the stranger's body, and it's a very destroyed robot, which you probably figured out by now. I would hope so. Yeah. (laughs) The corporal goes, no wonder he knew so much about robot fighting men. And I really think it would be hilarious if the robot's corpse was still smoking a cigarette. I mean, it really been great. It begs the question, why was he smoking a cigarette? I guess, maybe it was built into his face. I maybe that's what it was, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's why it was always the same length, too, the whole time. Yes. Uh, so that concludes Weird War Tales number six. Uh, I, I enjoyed reading it. I thought yeah. it was a good time. I don't know if I would uh, necessarily recommend it, but it was cool. It was a fun book. Uh, the Haney story, especially, was just so outlandish. Yes, that you can't uh, you can't help but enjoy it. But you know this isn't the first time DC Comics has used robots in uh, their army comics. They did visit this concept before pretty popularly. The first was Joe, a humanoid robot with no mouth and a control panel on his chest. He appeared in Star Spangled War Comics 101, February 1962, created by George Kaniger and Ross Andrew. Yeah, and uh, with Joe, we also had Mac, who looked a lot like Joe, but also, but he he had a mouth. Uh, he would show up in Star Spangled War Stories number one twenty five, March nineteen sixty six, and uh, gave its life to rescue some guy from a dinosaur. He was also created by Kaniger and Andrew. Yeah, who did basically were the war comics guys, I think, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, best known robot soldier in comics, and the one that I actually knew before this was uh, Jake One, or the Jungle Automatic Killer Experiment One, who appeared in Weird War Tales number 101, July 1981. 
and Jake was, relatively speaking, he was a fan favorite. He lasted for 10 issues, and he was co-created by Robert Kaniger and Pepe Moreno Casaras. Yes, uh, J-A-K-E-1 is replaced in the same issue. Uh, he's destroyed in by J-A-K-E-2. This is a Weird War, War Tales number 111, May 1982. This version could stick around for a, wh- a while and would even team up with the creature commandos in the pages of uh, Weird War Tales. Which is where those, I, were like, yeah. those were like, what, Frankenstein and the Wolfman? And, yeah, it was it was the universal horror movie characters yeah. as army guys. As it's soldiers, actually, yeah. you know, i got to say, creature commandos is... is uh, Better than a lot of people think. It's it, there is a trade collection of it, and it's worth checking out. It's uh, it's a lot of pathos in there that you wouldn't expect to see from the Bride of Frankenstein and a fake vampire. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it is also very wacky, as you can only imagine. Sure. Uh, in Checkmate, Volume Two, Number Twenty Four, May Two Thousand Eight, by Greg Rucka and Joe Bennett, Jake Six Point One shows up as an elite rook. Hmm. And of course, G.I. Robot would appear just like everybody in the DC Universe in Batman the Brave and the Bold. Uh, as an episode, The Plague of the Prototypes, he was voiced by James Arnold Taylor. Because, uh, you know, like we said, uh, when do we say that? We said that during Plastic Man. Yeah. <laughs> every, every weird DC character would show up in that cartoon. Uh, he's in an episode with uh, Sergeant Rock and, of course, Batman. Yeah, so we've seen these uh, robot soldiers before, and uh, hopefully we'll probably see them again um, in the comics and elsewhere. Now let's wrap up our uh, creators here, Joe Kubert. Uh, The Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art was founded by Joe and his wife Muriel in Dover, New Jersey, 1976. First graduating class had Stephen Bissett and Rick Veitch, our Swamp Thing pals. The graduates also include Amanda Connor, Alex Maliev, Rags Morales, and Lee Weeks, and there's a lot of people, pretty much uh, oh, yeah. a bunch of people working comics graduated from here. Kubert um, basically continued working on the stuff he felt like until uh, almost until he died. Uh, he worked almost up until death, had five children with his wife, Muriel. His sons, Andy and Adam, are illustrators who do comic work, mainly these days for DC. Uh, they'd been Marvel mainstays throughout the 90s and the early Naughties, uh, the 2000s, and uh, daughter daughter Katie is a comic book editor at Marvel. She actually was at DC doing Bat, the Batman group, and yeah. moved over to Marvel. I don't know, a couple of years ago. Yeah, Joe Joe Kubert won or has been nominated for many awards, which include the 1962 Alley Award for Best Single Comic Book Cover, which is The Brave and the Bold number 42, June July 62. Uh, the 1974 and 1980 National Cartoonist Society Awards in the category Story Comic Book. The 1977 Ink Pot Award, the 1997 Eisner Award for Best Graphic Album New, and this is for Facts from Sarajevo from, that came out from Dark Horse Comics in '98. Did you ever read this? No, I have not. No, I never read this either. No. Um, he also won in '97 the uh, Harvey Award for uh, Best Graphic Album of Original Work for the same story, Facts from Sarajevo. Uh, Cuba was inducted into the Harvey Awards Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1997. 97 was a big year for him. Oh, yeah. And uh, Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 98. I mean, this fax from Sarajevo must be great. He won a bunch of awards, and it yeah. to happen. Absolutely. Uh, Going to have to keep an eye out for that. Uh, in uh, 2009, Cubit received the Milton Caniff Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Cartoonist Society. And uh, Cubit was awarded the Inkwell Awards. Joe, Joe is it we saying Sinat? Sinat, I think, yeah. Sinat. Uh, the Ink, Inkwell Awards Joe Sinat Hall of Fame Award in 2015, which was accepted by his grandson, Orion Zangara, who is also a graduate of the Cubit School. Uh, Cubit would uh, pass away of multiple my- myeloma in uh, on August 12, 2012, in uh, Morristown, New Jersey. Yeah, uh, to conclude on Bob Haney, he continued writing for DC Comics, notably a long run on The Brave and the Bold that ended with a team-up between Batman and Commandy, number 157, December 1979. We talked about that when we did the Commandy episode. He also co-created The Super Sons, who first appeared in World's Finest Comics, number 215, January 1973. He wrote a book on carpentry titled Woodstock, Handmade Houses, with photographer Jonathan Elliott, Published by Ballantine Books in 1974, which I thought was a weird little fact. Did some comics writing in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, Haney's industry recognitions include the 1968 Alley Award for Best Full-Length Story, Track of the Hook, in The Brave and the Bold, 1979. That was August-September 1968, drawn by Neil Adams. And a 1997 Inkpot Award from Comic-Con International. He died November 25, 2004, in La Mesa, California. 
most importantly, he might also have been tangentially related to Chevy Chase. Oh, so that's right. I forgot that little fact. <laughs> now uh, we're going to wrap up, uh, wrap up uh, Toth. He uh, drew comics for DC and other publishers throughout the 70s. Uh, notably, he drew the story uh, Death Flies the Haunted Sky, written by, written by Archie Goodwin in Detective Comics number 442, September 1974, uh, which has been reprinted many times. Yeah. His uh, final work for DC Comics was the cover to uh, Batman Black and White number 4 in September 1996. In the 90s and 2000s, he contributed to the magazine's comic book artists and all the ego, writing the columns uh, called Before I Forget and Who Cares? I Do. Um, <laughs> he designed the uh, main characters from the uh, Steve Gerber produced cartoon Thunder the Barbarian, which is something of personal interest to Reggie. That's right. <laughs> he uh, received the Ink Pot Award from the San Diego Comic-Con in 1981 and was inducted into the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1990. Uh, he passed away at his drawing table of a heart attack on uh, May 27, 2008 in Burbank, California. Uh, his ashes were scattered in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, drew right up to the very end. I think that's pretty poetic. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap up by Marvin Wolfman. He had moved to Marvel Comics in 1972 as a protege to Roy Thomas. When Thomas stepped down, uh, Wolfman became editor of Marvel's Black and White magazines, then became editor-in-chief of Marvel around 1975 for a year. I was, these years always seem nebulous. He, yeah. He and Len Wein... I don't know if it was Len first or Marv next or the other way around, but they basically traded this role uh, two years in a row. Uh, wrote Tomb of Dracula with Gene Colan, where they co-created the vampire hunter Blade, and he co-created several other characters during this time and redesigned Spider-Woman, giving her the Jessica Drew identity. Took over the Howard the Duck newspaper strip, which I didn't even know existed, yeah. with Alan Kupperberg in 1978. And after a dispute with Jim Shooter, Marv went to DC Comics in 1980 and launched the new Teen Titans with George Perez, first appearing in DC Comics Presents, number 26, October 1980, then beginning its own title a month later. Uh, this had been DC Comics' first big hit in a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, wrote DC's first crisis event, Crisis on Infinite Earths, in 1985. This was also drawn by John George Perez. Uh, also wrote a bunch of G.I. Joe and Transformers cartoons during the 80s. That's just a personal memory of mine. Got into a dispute with DC over their rating system in the late 1980s, so they fired him. Mm. He worked for D Disney Comics in the 1990s and was editor for the comic section of their magazine, Disney Adventures, for a few years. He developed the computer graphics cartoon Transformers Beast Machines, which ran on Fox Kids in the late 1990s. And he sued Marvel in 1997 over Blade after the success of the movies based on the character and lost. And someday we will expand on that. We have uh, yeah. big plans, but not today. Uh, he still writes and works in comics today and is currently writing the Raven miniseries uh, coming out from DC. Uh, he also wrote Superboy a couple of years ago, and I think he wrote something in Convergence, so you still see him. Hang yeah, he out. did the new Teen Titans in, uh, in Convergence, yeah. All right, so, yeah, he, he, I'd say once or twice a year you see his name credited somewhere, usually on a DC book or maybe only on a DC book, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, here's just a partial list of his awards. He won the Inkpot Award in 1979. He won the 1982 Eagle Award for Best New Book in 1984 1985 Eagle Awards for Best Group Book, all for new Teen Titans. Uh, Wolfman and George Perez's Crisis on Infinite Earths won the 1985 and 1986 Jack Kirby Awards for Best Finite Series, the 2007 Scribe Award for, adapt, adapt, for Adapted Speculative Fiction Novel for his novel based on Superman Returns. He won the 2008 National Jewish Book Award in Children's and Young Adult Literature for nonfiction book Homeland, the Illustrated Story of the State of Israel. And lives in Los Angeles, California with his wife, Noelle. I'm going to wrap up uh, Thorne here. He uh, famously drew the uh, Red Sonja solo series for Marvel from uh, 1976 to 1979. Uh, created several erotic slash adult characters for Playboy, National Lampoon, and Heavy Metal. Uh, his awards include the 1963 National Cartoonist Society Award in the Comic Book Division and the 1978 San Diego Ink Pot Award. Currently lives in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. And uh, finally, Ross Andrew. Uh, for Skywall Publications, Ross and uh, Mike Esposito would uh, contribute a lot of work from the early 70s, uh, particularly to their horror line. Andrew and Esposito formed Clevart Enterprises. They were very yeah. enterprising gentlemen. They did love to form companies. I don't know what it was. Yes. And they're like the portmanteau of uh, names here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, this was in 1970, which was another clearinghouse for freelance work. 
Uh, in 72, they would publish two issues of a humor magazine, Up Your Nose and Out Your Ear. Uh, <laughs> uh, Andrew left DC in 1971, had a, had a five-year stint as penciler on The Amazing Spider-Man, which is where I remember him from. Yeah. Uh, and that was in 73, mostly written by uh, George Conway, who was another, uh, another big, big stint on Spider-Man that I remember quite fondly. Uh, during this time, the company would uh, introduce the Punisher and kill Gwen Stacy, and I think even bring in Luke Cage as well. Oh yeah, uh, uh, and Andrew drew all that. I think he might have. I, I wow. can't be too certain. I, I probably should have checked that first. I mean, I, mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, he didn't. He didn't. When I read about it, he didn't co-create the Punisher. In fact, I forget. I think it might have been Ween mm. uh, came up with the idea. But he he is the first idea, uh, visual. Identifier of the Punisher was drawn by uh, Ross Andrew, yeah. Very good. Uh, he penciled the first big intercompany crossover, which was Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man in 1976, which was also uh, written by Jerry Conway. Uh, he returned to DC Comics as an editor, where he remained until 1986. His uh, final published work was for Archie Comics' uh, Zen Intergalactic Ninja in 1993, where he teamed once again with Mike Esposito. You remember that comic, Chris? Was that a big favorite of yours? No. And the Intergalactic I, I, Ninja. <laughs> yes and no. Yes, I remember it. No, it oh. was a, it was a, it was during the boom. It was a, oh, yeah. it was one of those also rans. Yeah. Uh, and Andrew was inducted to the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 2007. Uh, post posthumously, uh, he passed away November 9th, 1993, in Far Rockaway, Queens, New York. So I mean, he must have done Zen Intergalactic Ninja right before. Right up to it, yeah. Away. Yeah, he also worked right up into the uh, the end. Uh, it's a great town too, definitely worth. Sure. Almost, you know, really all these guys. Bob Haney being sort of an acquired taste, but really, uh, D. Ron, you picked a book of heavy hitters, but probably didn't even know it when you picked it up with your uh, rubby little hands whenever you did it at that flea market. So. Uh, we had a good time with this, and we really thank yeah. you, Ron, for uh, recommending a book. And we got a couple of others on the list. But if you want to recommend a book or you want to tell us how much you love or hate or whatever you want to say about this uh, show, please <laughs> write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And remember, we're no longer restricting ourselves to DC Comics, mm -hmm. any comic. Um, we can't guarantee we can get the rarer comics, but we'll put it on the list. We'll keep our eyes peeled and do the best we can. And I happen um, to know that Reggie really wants to do the, the Young Blood number one, right? Yeah, that, that <laughs> apparently is coming up in our future, folks. And uh, you're going to see, uh, you know, I think I think people can already tell that you're more versed about the contents of comics. I have kind of more of an overview, but Young Blood is something. Young Blood was basically a reason I walked away from comics for a while. So this should be interesting. Yes. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, you can read our stuff every week on weirdsciencedccomics.com. We do articles and reviews and stuff like that. You want to follow me on Twitter? I'm at Reggie Reggie. And I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, I tell you every week, you got to go check out Chris's personal blog. Uh, Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com. He's finally uh, done with the October month of horror books, and he's yes. back to more regular books today i really liked yours what you did today which by the time the people hear it will have come out days ago but uh <laughs> about hal jordan's funeral yes uh, green lantern number 81 so i i thought i thought it was really good it, people you got to check it out if you're not reading it then you're really doing yourself a disservice i would even say it's kind of a companion kind of the, the written version of the cosmic treadmill yes <laughs> so definitely worth checking it out but uh, i think that's all we got from this week and it was quite a bit you got anything else chris no, I think, uh, I think uh, that's about all, all she wrote. Well, I want you to make no bore no more and keep it on the treadmill peacefully. See ya. Yeah, the rule of the law is God's equality. Desire for my brothers, the same as I desire for me. But when my brothers stay physically and mentally, 